welcome to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf into the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoy the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. We're coming to you today from the 25th anniversary Fall Supply Chain Forum at the Marriott in downtown Knoxville. As usual, Tom and I are going to kick off and talk about some of the things that are happening today in the world of supply chain management. And then we're going to talk about manufacturing in the healthcare industry with our good friend Jeff DeLulo from Philips. But first, Tom, let's open up. What are some of the things that you're hearing about from an economic standpoint and from a supply chain trends standpoint? Yeah, no lack of news out there. Headlines, uh, certainly the earnings reports continue to come in and it seems to be kind of that mixed bag. I think we've, we've talked about this in the past based on what we've seen, whether it's manufacturers, distributors, retailers, or logistics service providers, you know, pretty healthy top lines, but some very challenged bottom lines as a result of income statements being weighed down by inflation. Just about every line item, uh, you know, one that we watch pretty closely is fuel. Well, it's the fuel for our supply chains. And even though it's been getting a little bit better at, at the pumps for us and our conventional cars, you know, heavy duty tractor trailers, it's still pretty pricey out there. In fact, I was doing a, a meeting with a group out in California last week, and I said, what's your highway diesel prices right now? And they, someone said $6.48. At least freight rates are down. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard to keep those freight rates down, right, when that's the well, second largest line item. For that helps, yeah. yeah, if you can pass those along. But hey, speaking of charges, you know, we're hearing about uh, general rate increases. It's that season, that time of year for the parcel carriers and the LTL carriers. And Certainly FedEx and UPS made headlines uh, recently saying that I think what they're 6.9% on average, which is a pretty healthy increase across the board, particularly when we're going into some freight uncertainty. I think the LTL carriers are coming in a little bit south of that. I thought Old Dominion came in at 4.9%. That seems to suggest some, if not difficult headwinds from a fuel pricing standpoint, uh, maybe kind of bullish in terms of what the freight volumes are going to look like ahead. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. I know that parcel rates definitely are going up. We're seeing a lot of um, manufacturers talking about direct shipments, but pulling back on some of their products that are heavier just because of the increased expenses of that. A lot of retailers are really pushing the network they've developed in the last couple of years for buy online, pick up in store, so you can skip that that kind of last mile expense. All in all, though, pretty surprising freight. Well, I, I say surprising. Um I'm not surprised. I don't think you're surprised. We'll ask Jeff later if he's surprised. But, you know, back in the spring, we said everybody was forward buying for this year's holiday season, and we didn't expect to see the big bump we tend to see from August through the holidays because we weren't afraid we could get stuff in. So people pre-bought. We saw inventory levels soar over the summer, and now we're not seeing the holiday freight spike, and yet you keep reading reports that we're all running scared that the sky is falling because freight volumes are down. Right. Okay, no big surprise, right? I think we need to remember to read the stuff that we wrote and talked about six months ago so that we don't freak out so much. 
Not saying we shouldn't be used to freaking out. I mean, it's been a, it's been a freak out f- few years, right? I just saw that the purchasing managers index came out, uh, either yesterday afternoon or this morning. It was at 50.7, which was a slight uptick from August, which was at 50.6. Any numbers above 50 are a suggestion of expansion in manufacturing. So that's a good number. It's weak, obviously, but it's not. 48, right? It's 50.7. So I think there are still some signs of life uh, across different industries. Lots of readings about different leading economic indicators saying we're going to fall into a recession this fall, but that the recession should not be particularly strong. I guess that remains to be seen. And inflation is you know, still the big concern. The next Fed meeting, they're still indicating that they're going to do a 75 basis point increase in the rate. So that has everybody scared. Yeah, I think, you know, there was some suggestion they might be ready to back off that 75 basis points. I think even yesterday we saw a bump in the market because there was some suggestion that it might get doled out uh, over a longer period of time. But you're right, if it wasn't for inflation, I think we'd find ourselves in a pretty good stand right now. You know, I mean, you're right that, that maybe balancing supply and demand has been virtually impossible for folks given particularly long lead times to get things in sync. That's been a real problem. And, you know, maybe we'd be still out of sync, but if it wasn't for inflation, I think things would be pointing in a much more positive light. And again, still a lot of really strong, I don't know about really strong, but several positive data points out there. I always look to the end of the supply chain, you know that, and consumers are still spending. Now, they might be spending in different ways, but they're still spending. So there's another shocker, right? Yeah. We said that once we came out of the pandemic that people would start going out to concerts again. By the way, we've been hosting 102,000 people here on campus. We're doing our part. Eight times a, a year. So so people are coming out, right? And they're spending on things that they weren't spending on for two years during COVID, which means they're not buying Pelotons and they're probably not doing as many do-it-yourself home projects. So again, big surprise, consumers have shifted spending and yet we continue to freak out about that. Hey, Ted, I'm glad you brought up the Pelotons because I brought with me a little bit of homework. Here, I did a little bit of research coming in today. You mean you're going to do Peloton the, instead of get on well, the road with your knees? Is that what you're well, me? I'm going to talk Pelotons. <laughs> and and uh, certainly a great product, but I, I think we can all recognize that maybe that market reached a certain saturation point. I don't know how many Pelotons the demand planners thought we were all going to be buying. You know, it was like uh, two cars for every household, three or four Pelotons for every household. I think I'm going to go back and get my PhD in psychology and just spend the rest of my career with demand Demand planners, absolutely. They need our help. Because if the direction is this, it's going to be that forever. Oh, absolutely. And if the There's no is end. this, it's going to be that forever. Right, right. Well, here are the data points I wanted to share with you. So back September 2020, when everyone was trying to get our hands on a Peloton, it was the, you know, entering the fall of that, that first year pandemic, 2,245 bucks for a Peloton bike. All right. Now you fast forward to the following August of 2021, they took it down to 1895. Okay. So 250 bucks <laughs> off you go forward beyond that and they've lowered to 1495 and 1445 earlier this year so they these continue are new ones. These, these are, are new ones used. these are new ones these are new ones now the used market i wanted to say hey if i go out to facebook buy sell trade site 
what could I get for the same dollar? 850 bucks, you can get a Peloton and you get the cleats, assuming they fit, you know, the right, right. size. But you get the amenities for 850 bucks out there. But meanwhile- That's crazy. Yeah. And just oh, kind of oh by the way, study. I'm sure this is just coincidental, but there's a new CEO and a whole new leadership team at Peloton. Yeah. That no, it's all true. It's all true. But it's an interesting case study, right? To that point of- Maybe we got about enough stuff after two and a half years of just buying durable merchandise. You know, some friends in the automotive industry have been bemoaning, and it's understandable. If, if they had the semiconductors that we've been talking about, they'd be selling a lot more cars these days. But they might also run themselves into a cash for clunkers situation. Remember that back in 09 when we were desperate to save the U.S. auto works? And meanwhile, it's like, hey, if, it, if you can roll it into the lot, you're going to get a healthy discount, yeah. uh, a good trade-in on that. Well, and I think then, what's going to help the auto industry is a lot of the fleets and rental car companies, et cetera, are going to start stocking up again as we travel more. Right? Yeah, they do need to stock up for sure. But the point being, they got so ahead of themselves. They sold two and three years worth of supply in a few months' time. And they're just like, hey, what happened to the market? To your point, again, these demand planners that just kind of think the, it's, it's a perpetual cycle in which they find themselves. So what do you think is bottom line about where we are from a supply chain trend standpoint sitting here on October 25th, 2022? Well, I think it is a time that we're seeing that shift in balance. Again, companies feeling like they got way too much inventory, getting really nervous about it. It's weighing down earnings. I understand that. But you got to be real careful, I think, about how you manage your supply chain relationships. In fact, I was meeting with a group of students earlier today from our MS Online program uh, gathered this week for the immersion experience. And we were having conversations about, you know, how do you think you ought to be treating your carriers? How should you be treating your your vendors? How should you be working with customers? And, you know, even though it could be very tempting to <laughs> maybe to pursue some opportunistic behaviors, it might be, you know, low cost buying or maybe even turning the tables on the carriers who have been, you know, fairly opportunistic the last few years. It's like, maybe it'd be wise to... uh to smooth things over a little bit and have a little bit longer view. And I think that's kind of where we need to find ourselves. You know, I've been doing this 32 years and and we've always said change is what we live with as supply chain managers. I'm not sure how this is possible, but even ever faster continuing change is just the nature of the day, right? That we have to build our supply chains with an eye towards the fact that what is good today, that likely in six months maybe not be good anymore because of changing demand, changing supply conditions. Yeah, these conditions are very fleeting, right? I mean, and we can try to pontificate as to what folks ought to be doing and optimizing their supply chains for, for bottom line performance, but they could find themselves uh, on the wrong side I mean, of the, the circumstance. As I ride into the last few years of my career, I would love to whoa, see Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't, don't go there. <laughs> a few, several years. Okay. I would love to see us get to a point where our business units, our strategic planners recognize this notion and build into our cost models that we need to build resilient, agile, sustainable supply chains and not focus on that ultimate bottom line, that we build more robust cost models into that. Yeah. I think also just recognizing this notion of supply chain equity. You know, there is equity in the relationships. You know, it it goes beyond what we deliver to the bottom line. We create value in so many different ways. And recognizing that supply chain is a team sport. It's a team sport across the business, across businesses. And we really need to to recognize that it's important to get that championship team together because you're going to have to weather some storms. So speaking of championship teams, mm. 
Mm. We haven't had that's talk a good like transition. this around here for uh, a I long time. I think I like time. where we're going. I feel like 98. Don't know? jinx. We're not going <laughs> to jinx it here, are we? <laughs> no, I don't. Possibly. <laughs> I am a jinx. Um, I have been known to bring programs down. I think I've been here so long now that I brought the program down, and the gods of football are allowing it to come back. Maybe. Maybe well, Ohio State won their last two championships in 30 years when I was on faculty. So you're, so, you're, you're you just have, saying. You have good mojo. I'm just saying. You weren't at Florida in the early 2000s. No, I was not. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, but speaking of which, most folks around here recognize that we had this really big game for the, for the ages against Alabama two Saturdays ago. I happened to be laying in an exam room in the emergency department at UT Medical Center for about nine hours that oh, day, but who's counting? Um, but luckily, we did have a TV in there. And while I was absolutely freaking miserable, I had a TV on, was able to watch the game, and it was amazing, and I realized that that game probably got me through the day. I had some follow-on surgery after hip replacement in July that got infected. You had partial knee surgery yeah, but it the was same scheduled. day I did. Yeah, it was scheduled, but we were both uh, under medical care about the same time last week. It was but a it, tough week. I, my point is, I, I think it makes us take for granted how incredible our medical and healthcare supply chain is. Mm -hmm. My heart rate just went crazy after surgery, and so I wore a heart monitor for three days. Happened to be a North American Phillips electronics heart monitor, and we happen to have here with us Jeff DeLulo, head of services and solution delivery and field operations, North America Phillips. Jeff was previously with Dell and HP. He's a West Point graduate. No comments there, Jeff. As a Naval Academy graduate and a son with an Air Force. We don't count even Air Force. I mean, Army, Navy, on, they man. get so mad about that, by the way. It's like, we've been the best program, won the most Commander-in-Chief's trophies, and yet the whole world only thinks about Army, Navy. You're like, you're the little sibling. Just go away. But Jeff is here with us to talk about some of the amazing things they're doing at Philips in the sustainable manufacturing world and the ESG world. Jeff, welcome to the conversation with Tom and I. Great to have you with us. Before we dive into the main topic we brought you here for, um, any comments about some of those things that Tom and I were talking about, given that you're on the front lines of all these trends? Well, first of all, Ted, Tom, thanks for having me. It's very rare that a Navy grad offers a hand of hospitality, so I appreciate that right <laughs> off the bat. We deal with a very changing environment in medical supply chains. I deliver everything from 10,000 pound MRs. It has a very specific supply chain to heart rate monitors and things that are very easy. The challenge is getting the right stuff to the right place in a global supply chain when there's so many interdictions of you know transportation, different lanes that don't work like they used to, or they stop working right in the middle of a 10-week shipping. So providing that urgent care means we've had to develop a whole different level of redundancy and agility to be able to respond to things that happen and sometimes it means more inventory so that we can accomplish our mission. I remember some of the things you were telling me about that you all did during like the summer and fall of 2020, yeah. Yeah. just building this. I mean, it was almost like army let tents me, Let me get you excited just for a second here, yeah. because one of the coolest things we did, we did the ventilator contract with the U.S. government, which was a huge thing for COVID, the strategic reserve. But more importantly, we had hospitals that were having overflow everywhere and couldn't get the supply chain to react fast enough. So what we did is we built these mobile kits that were literally army-hardened Pelican cases that you could put on a pallet and deploy, self-contained network setup instructions. We built them in one of our facilities, and we just deploy them out 10 and 20 at a time. We basically build a tent emergency room, and when they were done with it, when the capacity went down, we'd bring it back, we'd refurbish it, and take it to the next one. It was an ultimate example of agility in a time when hospitals just needed a new and fast solution. So, you know, if most people that served in the military become history buffs, 
you know, it's no surprise supply chain management traces its roots to folks like Hannibal and Caesar and folks like that. So having a former army officer here talking about the kind of things they're doing and could do during an, an urgent time period like COVID is just, yeah, it does get me. But I, I think probably that, too excited. Well, that would make an amazing case study too. We'd love to write that up. But to the point that it wasn't critical necessarily to get those ventilators everywhere in that moment, right? Because we had hot spots that flashed up they needed the deployment, you know, you'd tamp it down was the term we were using, and then the next hotspot would flash, right? So it wasn't a matter of providing nationwide distribution. I mean, it took a while for this pandemic to hit. The yeah, great, I mean, we, you know, big sky country as an example. We're right? used to very long development cycles, work with the FDA, and in this case, we used innovation to kind of say, what do we have approved by the FDA that we could package differently and create logistics as the differentiator to be able to be agile? And so very quickly, in weeks, we put something together that normally would take a year or two to run through the whole process. So Jeff, you've also told me some uh, new stories about some of the things y'all are doing with sustainability and manufacturing. Tell us about some of that. Yeah, you know, sustainability is kind of like, it's a word. It's very abstract and and people use it a lot to talk about things. But what I am excited about at Philips is we're working in very practical ways in applying a sustainable and circular planning structure to everything we do, all the way from product design to end of life of materials. And it really is pervasive in our supply chain. And let me tell you a little bit about Philips, because most people don't know. They think of us as lighting and TVs. And and that was true. It's a 131-year-old company. But about 12 years ago, we spun everything off in the conglomerate that wasn't health technology related and became a pure health tech concern. That's a major transformation and it's still ongoing, but we serve essentially what you would call the health continuum, healthy living from oral health care, which is very important when you're having major invasive surgeries, uh, to mother and child care. Uh, We have diagnostic and treatment. So if you have an an x-ray or an MR like you did, or a a CT scan, uh, we're one of the top three in every one of those markets. And then in the surgical labs, Probably half of the surgical labs that you might walk into are Philips are in those. In fact, we're in about 95% of every hospital in the U.S. So we have a good footprint, but people don't think of it like that. They think of the lighting, but the footprint is wonderful for us because in that transformation, our mission became very clear, use meaningful innovation to improve people's lives. And so our sort of mission is two and a half billion lives touched by meaningful innovation by this decade this decade, two and a half billion, and then 400 of those in underserved communities. And that is where our circularity model really, where supply chain is a differentiator for us in being able to accomplish our mission. So it's not about the profits and the bottom line all the time. What's the mission? And our mission is 400 million in underserved communities globally because we we leverage circularity in our entire end-to-end process. We we have much better reach and affordability of healthcare. So circularity, it's an intriguing concept. And uh, that means closing the loop. And and you mentioned that it's not an, hey, we've got the product deployed out there. How do we take it back? But, you know, by that time, if you're thinking about it, then it's too late, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about in the design phase that you're thinking about this closed loop proposition. Walk us through that journey a little bit in terms of how the organization orients itself to be thinking about that closed loop and perpetuation and and then how that then could then serve those 400 million people you're talking about. Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. And I'm I'm actually going to I'm going to take a step on the what we call the scopes, the three scopes of sustainability, most sort of globally accepted multiple scopes of sustainability. But first, share with you what most people don't know about the healthcare industry. 27% of the carbon footprint globally is from healthcare or healthcare related. 8% of the carbon footprint in the United States. It's the largest industry sector driver of carbon emissions in the United States. So that's not a small thing. In fact, square foot for square foot 
a hospital expends two and a half times more carbon emissions than an office building. Is that energy power base? It's energy and power base, right? But you can imagine I'm powering up a a huge magnet or CT scanner or x-rays all the time. These are huge energy consumption. So the carbon emission from that is massive. So yes, there's an environmental friendly aspect to what we do. But again, our mission goes back to if I make it more efficient, I deliver better care, I make it affordable to more people, I meet my goal, right? So the reason I wanted to say that is because improving overall care doesn't have to be an expensive proposition. Give you one example in what I'll call scope one, which is our footprint. And I'm going to get to what you're talking about in terms of circularity, because I think that's that's the gold mine, but you got to do the other things first. Our footprint. We wanted to practice what we preach, so we went carbon neutral in 2020. Zero waste landfill in our manufacturing facilities. We wanted to make that if we do it, then people will trust that we're on the right direction. In fact, I got personally invited to go to the White House to meet with Secretary of Health and Human Services and Secretary of VA and their Council on Sustainability and, and how do we get the medical industry to attack this 8% carbon footprint problem. We were the only health tech company to sign the Pledge of Health and Human Services, and so we got a front row seat to how we can help the supply chain become more efficient. Yeah, so that's going to be almost like a cultural change. Right? It's a cultural it's just, change, yeah. but if we do it first, then we can start to expect it of others. Now, in that meeting, I happened to meet with 30 or so of the largest hospital chains in the country. They're crying out to ask us to help them reduce their footprint, reduce their energy, their costs. Their, their operating cost is largely driven by the equipment I give them. If I make more efficient equipment, they spend less money, they create better care pathways for people. So in scope one, for us to create a carbon footprint and then into what we call eco-design, about 70% of our products have some eco-design category, anything from you know, packaging of how we ship our toothbrushes to an MR that has what we call a blue seal or a, a very low helium footprint. So helium is a huge environmental disaster. An average MR has 1,500 liters of helium in it. Uh, which costs tens of thousands of dollars a year to maintain. Yeah. So we do it with seven liters of helium. So the, the, the footprint goes down, the cost goes down, the energy consumption goes sure. exponentially down for a hospital. So we're actually trying to work with them in quantifiable ways of how we can help them improve the Yeah, there's so many footprint. innovative ways once you get inside a product and know exactly what goes in them. Very similar, right? In, in a totally different industry, and this always tends to be a theme of mine, but worked with one of our other UTMBA grads in Europe, who is the uh, chief supply chain officer for Carlsberg Beer Europe. They are building, yeah, good job. They've built a new brewery outside of Hamburg where they have reduced the amount of water needed to make a liter of beer to one and a half liters, whereas industry standard is four liters of beer, right? So things that you don't even think about until you get really inside the design and and understand the processes. But the design of that, the R&D around that was pennies on the dollar compared to the environmental and the cost impact that you serve downstream. What, so scope two, operational efficiency, uh, going back to the construct, uh, scope two, we think of operational efficiency as how do we make hospitals more efficient? Guess what? You're all talking about cost of labor. Cost of labor is a very big thing. A lot of nurses, doctors burn out during the pandemic and just said, I'm out. Now I have staffing shortages everywhere and staffing right now is 50% premium to what it was a year and a half ago. Digital innovation becomes like the next layer of efficiency in hospitals. How do I cover more ICUs, monitor more beds with fewer staff that know what to do and can react to it? Give you one example of what we're working on with the VA, for example. We have the largest telehealth EICU, we call it EICU deployment. If you go to a veterans hospital and you go to an ICU, you will have a Philips EICU setup. So I can scale three times fewer nurses and monitoring with the same level of intervention capability, but I don't have as many staff having to serve that clientele. 17,000 veterans beds, which I'm very proud of, you and I as veterans want the best care for our veterans. 17,000 veteran beds have 
EICU capability that I can monitor and guarantee great service 24-7. Plus the data trail and the visibility that then goes to the entire medical team, um, whether it's urology or infectious disease or whatever, they can all have access to that. So I came from, you said Dell and HP, which is true, but my the first part of my civilian career was in what I'll call data center tech, right? So I saw that convergence of from the things and the boxes and the compute and the storage to the network to the software layer to converged architecture to I can do it from anywhere. I can serve you from anywhere. So now the healthcare industry, high cost, has not been quick to adapt, but now it's ripe. IoT is so prevalent that it's, it's rife to be able to adopt the technologies that are there so I can sit software platforms. Your doctor didn't need to be at the hospital looking at your hip. Right. Your doctor could have been in Florida on a boat on his iPad looking at your measurements and saying, yep, he's got swelling. He's, you know, all that intervention, that note-taking, that workflow can be done, which really relieves the pressure on hospital staffing. Perfect example. I contacted my PCP yesterday. I'd been in the hospital since the previous Friday. I had not seen him. I'd seen a whole battery of doctors. I contacted him yesterday and he got back to me on the portal and said, oh yeah, I've been following everything that's going on. Let's see on Thursday. It's remarkable. Now we're just at the beginning of it. There's pieces of it, but pulling it all together is the exciting part because for me now, the value chain is not in the delivery of the MR. It's in the implementation of the software and the ecosystem that allows workflow to be more efficient, to allow hospitals to lower their staffing costs, better staff satisfaction, and ultimately reach more patients more often. Your MRI, we could triple the throughput, for example. I can serve three times more people a day with a Blue Seal MRI. You know, it was interesting to me. I was inpatient for eight days. All these big facilities, CT scans, MRIs, radiology, et cetera, they all have lots of outpatient services. Well, if you're inpatient, you go down the middle of the night, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And it was just amazing to me. I called it Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. They'd come in and get my bed, and this bed like was bed knobs and broomsticks. You know, I'm flying through the hospital at midnight. And to see the amount of activity at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, at all these different radiology centers, et cetera, t- talking about throughput, right? And getting people through the, with the and tests. Even then, need. if you have staff that has to do, you got to pay people to work overtime and weekends and after hours. And what if you didn't have to because you could get three times the throughput during a workday? Yeah. Yeah. You know, something I'm really excited about hearing you describe, Jeff, is that there doesn't sound like there's sacrifice in the output, if you will. You know, it's, it's, Often when we talk about sustainability, I think people have this preconceived notion that something has to give in order to get better quality, Mm -hmm. to get more output, to reduce costs, that those are counter to achieving sustainability. But you're you're speaking of the and, not the either or proposition there, which is fantastic. Paradigm of the and. Absolutely. We go the other way. We go as if you start with the entire cost of the ecosystem in mind, this is why we're seeing huge convergence on large, long-term strategic partnerships, both with our hospital partners at downstream and upstream supply chain. This is where it gets exciting because the value of our supply chain is seven times bigger in our sustainability footprint than just us, if you go all the way back to the tiers. So now I get excited and I go to kind of pure supply chain. We're requiring science-based targets for 50% of our suppliers by the year 2025. We're well on the way already. We think that's the only way to make people quantifiably do the right things but we've, we're helping them as part of the design because we're, we're thinking about the end state and the cost to serve downstream for our hospitals as the design point. The other piece of that is circularity. With the opportunity is massive. I have an MR that typically a life is 10 years. Let's just say you use it for 10 years. Well, that magnet could be good. I can refurbish it. At a lower cost, I can move it to a secondary market. 
which is really one of the ways we've done this. So we've, we've improvised some business model changes to basically say, well, think of MR as a service. Literally, think of MR as a service. I operationalize your cost. I bring it down to predictable payment as a hospital. I bring the asset back when you're done. I refurbish it, and I do it over again. Now, I, I take it to a different market, but I am extending my opportunity to care for underserved populations infinitely. It's another military idea, performance-based operations, That's right. right? So a great example for us, we took about 100 ultrasound units, you know, the point-of-care the ultrasound units you can cart around on a wheel. We brought them back. We refurbished them. If we can't refurbish them and, and resell them or repurpose them, we'll harvest them for all the parts. We have the largest parts network in the industry right now out of Nashville. 33,000 parts a year go through our facility, and we just repurpose this so we can keep systems longer. But when we have the opportunity, we work with partners like MedShare out of Atlanta that they specialize in underserved communities. So we bring these through, we refurbish them, certify them, maintain them, and then send them into underserved communities in South Bay, Oakland, and South Bay area, inland, and California. 67 clinics have mother and child care, have ability for neonatal or prenatal ultrasound scans for health of the baby for early intervention that they would never have access to. And that's here in the United States. Right. Right. When we're doing that globally. So these things don't cost a lot of money. The value, I actually get the full value back when I send it to a secondary market. It's already paid for itself. So why wouldn't you do it? Oh, I wouldn't, but right. you have to think about the whole value chain. You can't just think about the... I mean, so that, that wraps that whole circular thinking into yeah, it. Closing the loop. Jeff, this has been fantastic. And uh, you know, we're all leaning forward here. We, we only do the live ones at the forums. I mean, we should do <laughs> live ones. do it more often. And, and it also goes back to the theme that, can you imagine how long we'd go if we actually had bourbons in front of us? I mean... <laughs> We would really be getting it jazzed would be epic. about that. It, it would, would be epic. And if, and if it was Army Navy weekend, it would be even better. Oh, so so do we have do we have a little bet? I'm sure we can wager something. Like one's in the making. Okay, we'll figure it out as we get closer. There's, there's probably um, a good bourbon bet we can. Yeah, figure we'll out. do a go. good bourbon bet. There okay, or maybe can, Tennessee whiskey. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us and spending the time with us. We look forward to spending the next couple of days with you at the forum. Tom, you want to bring us home? Yeah, no, I, just again, thank you, Jeff. This is great. And as you can hear in our voices, we're just so excited to be here gathered for, uh, it's our 25th anniversary supply chain forum. I've only been here for a few years, but I know how much the forum means. And again, it was instrumental in, in, in bringing me here. So I'm just really excited and to have the likes of Jeff and, and other uh, proud alums and a mm-hmm. whole host of other friends of our program gathered. It's going to be a full house, I understand, right? Busting at the seams. Yeah. Um, how many of your team did you bring, Jeff? I've got four with me. Great, great. Yeah, a lot of our senior leaders have started using it as a way to for talent development. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. great for that great purpose. Event. So, uh, hey, just uh, I guess on our next podcast, we'll be probably reporting on the far side of this and we'll have some new rich insights that we'll be able to share with the world, right? So uh, we'll be getting that one on the schedule and, and, and lining up our, our next uh, exciting yeah, guests. Yeah, a few things happen in the next few weeks, like a national midterm election. and A lot uh, going on. Lot maybe going continuing on. news on a West Coast labor contract. And Life gets no less Or maybe not a West Coast labor contract. <laughs> Life gets no less interesting uh, week over week, day after day. But uh, hey, uh, to our friends out there, we appreciate you listening. Uh, We really love hearing from you as well. And if you'd have any comments, questions, suggestions, please send them to us at gsci at utk.edu. And with that, we'll sign off with another edition. Thanks again for listening. to Tennessee on supply chain management. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Leave a reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com 
or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think.